This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then as you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. You guys can have a seat. That is a commandment of the Lord. That commandment is to not have any partaking of the unfruitful works of darkness, but to expose it. Where the cockroaches lie, they lie in darkness. What unbelievers do, they do in the dark. Heaven forbid you shine the light on them. But we, amen, are the light of the world. That city set on hill And we have the horrible but amazing task of bringing the light of the gospel. But when the light comes, we have to expose that. So um, that can, I say horrible because it can be a very, very daunting task. I've been doing this for um, just two years full time. Now, we, my wife and I have been doing this, and man, we've been attacked physically. We've been spit on. We've had death threats. We've had tons of things happen. And I've done a lot of ministry in my life. I've been, been, got saved at a very young age, but nothing has really compared to what the persecution that we faced because of exposing this issue. And I'll tell you this, there is no issue that is greater in magnitude, in my opinion, than the issue of abortion in the heart of God the Father. And there is no issue of greater magnitude of love in Satan than the blood of children. Abortion, it's been said, is the sacrament of demons. A little bit of a fair warning today. It's, it's you know, this is not going to be your, your average topic. This is a hard topic. And I know that in a room full like this, we have all shapes, backgrounds, you know, and um, things that we've all been involved in. And I would be a total fool to think that um, there aren't people in this room that have been, uh, you know, in their past have been guilty of the sin of abortion. Whether men abdicating their responsibilities and driving their wife or their girlfriend or their previous 
lover to the clinic, and these are the skeletons that we cl- hide in our closet, but uh, even women who have uh, shamefully, even be, maybe before Christ or maybe shamefully even as a Christian, fallen into this sin. So anything I say, I say going forward with the reality of this. So anything you hear today, hear this more than anything, these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Why? Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And it is the gospel that no, no, not only causes us to look back at our past and rejoice in the hope of the gospel and the God who lifted us out of our pit, that pit that we look back into, that we need to look back into because it reminds us of the glorious grace of Jesus that he could forgive us for such things, for such as some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in Christ Jesus. So that is a little bit of a primer before we get into this topic. Um, I don't see many children here, but... um, in case there are some I'm not seeing, this, this up to your parents' discretion, we're, we are going to show some photos of some babies that unfortunately my wife and I uncovered outside of an abortion clinic in, in, uh, in March of this year. I'll go into that story of a trending kind of movement called Justice for the Five to bring justice for these five late-term abortions uh, babies that we found in D.C. A little bit of a background on me. I am actually a medical professional. I've been an EMT for, man, I think it's 20 years now. When I graduated high school, I I took my EMT because I thought I was going to be a firefighter like every other one of my my friends at that time. You know, we all are like, just a very popular thing around my circle of friends. We all like, firefighter man we're gonna get the girl and we're gonna you know they love chicks dig, dig firefighters like so um so but in order to get, become a firefighter i had to become an emt so i i took my emt course um and man i started working on an ambulance because i had to fulfill that as a prerequisite to go to fire academy and i fell in love with medicine i fell in love with just working. I, I love the fast-paced environment and working with uh, people in 911 calls. I, man, God put me strategically on an ambulance. I worked for almost four years for AMR in the, most, the busiest area of Compton Watts area in the ghetto. I saw people get shot up and stabbed. It was, it was wild. Fell in love with that. Went back to school. Fast forward, became a respiratory therapist. And then I started working on these little tiny babies as a respiratory therapist, putting these babies on ventilators. And many don't know, but when you're a premature child, one of the last things to develop is the lungs. And they they lack something called surfactant, which is a, a chemical that increases the surface area in our lungs and help us exchange oxygen. So we have to put these little babies on ventilators 
to allow them enough time so that their lungs can, can grow and uh, that they can breathe on their own. So I'm, I'm putting these little babies on ventilators. They're coming out of the NICU. I'm taking care of them in the CT. Some, many of them, we have the CTICU where we have kids with cardiac anomalies, heart conditions, things like that that we put on ventilators. And I'm working on these children and some of them coming out of the NICU at 21, 22, 23 weeks gestation. Six months gestation, six month old child in the womb. Right. Now they're out of the womb. They're coming out of the NICU. We're putting all of our energy, all of our time, all of our resources, everybody delving into trying to save these little children for the sake of their mother and the sake of these lives of these innocent children, these precious babies that we get to hold their little hands that they can fit in the palm of our pinky, you know? And uh, even though pinkies don't have palms, but, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it struck me. I'm working on these little babies. And then I realized that, man, somewhere in this hospital, in another area, I don't even know where. To this day, I have nowhere, but up to 24 weeks we're trying to save them at 20, 21 weeks. Up to 24 weeks, they are literally dismembering them limb from limb. So I'm like, what the heck? What's the difference between this baby that I'm saving, that we're, we're all saying valuable? Oh, wow, you're valuable because you want it. It's a fetus when we don't want it. But in the NICU, oh, yeah, oh, congratulations on your baby. Yeah, we're doing best to save little Tom or Timmy or whatever. We're, we're giving these children names and we're giving them an identity and personhood because we deem them value as if our mere fiat decision as to which one of these two children is valuable makes them so. God was doing a work in my heart and it was just gripping me. I'm like, 3,000 children a day, poisoned, dismembered. 3,000, that's like more than a 9-11 every single day. And we never even hear a word about it. This, I'm, I'm like, I read in the history classes about slavery and Jim Crow and, and um, you know, like gladiator games. How could, in the world could they, they kill each other for sport? How in the world could these people sit down, eat their, you know, equivalent of popcorn and watch people be slaughtered, devoured by lions in the arena and we cheer? How in the world could they do that? Wake up, this is our gladiator games. How in the world could they slay, enslave another human being and act as if they were property? But during those times, the status quo was what you accepted. The cultural tide was going this way and what you accepted, the norm, was what you experienced as normative. 
But we as believers are called to be the light of the world, the city on the hill, the ones that are swimming upstream, the ones that said in places like in the south where, where they would hide these slaves, the Underground Railroad, standing up against the culture saying, no, we will not do this. I wanted to be that person. So I didn't know what to do. I like literally Googled Planned Parenthood. I'm like, okay, well, Lori, let's like just go try to offer to adopt their babies. Let's go call these dudes out and call them their, tell them they're cowards for driving their freaking wife to an abortion clinic to kill their kid. That is like the ultimate beta male. So I started going out of Planned Parenthood. Man, this place opened at like 5.30 in the morning. There's just strings of cars lined up. People just waiting to go inside. And I just started preaching the gospel. I started calling out to these women. Let us help you. Let us adopt your baby. Please let us do anything. What do you need? And I was the only one there. Actually, there was one other guy. Um, God bless him. His name was, his Joe. And uh, I, I typed in my phone. I put his name, a number in my phone. Joe Baby Warrior. <laughs> but um, he, for years, he didn't say a word. He just literally just handed out, as girls were going in, he just handed out flyers. I was like, praise God for this guy. He's doing something. And um, we started going, and God started doing things, saving babies, women turning around. I noticed an interesting thing, that the women that were most irate, flipping me off, seeing every expletive in the book, were usually the ones that turned around and went home. I don't want to belabor that point too much, but... God started doing a work and I was just like, where is everyone? I could Google church and within a five mile radius was like 50 churches and no one was there. So what I did in my naivete was just say, man, I'll just talk to all the pastors I know. Oh my gosh, was that a bad idea? I was so shocked, by the way, I don't want to get into a rant, uh, tangent, but I was so shocked when, when Pastor Joe offered me to speak at a church. This is the first church I've ever spoke at, believe it or not, because no one will have me. No one wants to touch this with a 10-foot pole. I didn't tell him, by the way, that this was the first church I ever spoke at. <laughs> He's, um, you're kind of stuck with me right now. We're halfway through this, you know. <laughs> um, so anyway, God began doing a work, and, and I went to the, the pastors that I knew, and I was just like, man, can, can, you, can, you help, can you come down here and check this out? And they were like, are you kidding me? Um, I got no responses, by the way. Just sent out calls, email, mass emails. Hey, get, get them on by, by Facebook. Hey, bro, uh, by the way, I sent you an email and called you a couple times. Radio silence. 
couple people that I knew for years. I mean, these pastors I'd know. I've been in the church since I was like born, pretty much. I've been, I grew up in LA over here, or I'm sorry, in uh, Upland, California. Uh, many of these men have been doing ministry with for five, 10 years. Nothing. Nothing. Radio silence. And I think a few reasons for that. That's not the topic of this message, but one, it's, I think it comes down to money. People don't want to hear about this. This is the skeleton in their closet. And many people, when they hear about the sin of abortion, they just bolt. If you need to keep the doors open, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> but if you want to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and these children that are dying, this is the only way to do it. So anyway, long story short, I was like, dude, I got to do something about this. I, I have no clue why I can't get pastors to talk to me. I, I need to like do a documentary about this or like figure out, get to the bottom of this issue and do something about it. Long story short, I, I started interviewing all these people that I found. People would tell me, oh, you need to interview this guy. You need to interview that guy. And then I found uh, this guy who ended up being my mentor. His name is uh, Jeff White, one of the leaders of Operation Rescue. I don't know if you, any of you remember that movement back in the 80s and the early 90s, but this guy's been arrested almost 150 times for putting himself between the police and, um, well, the abortionists and, uh, and the victims, right? And uh, he began to see my fire and passion. He's like, brother, I, I don't know what this is, but I feel like you, God's calling me to like, I'm getting old. I feel like God's calling me to, to have you be a part of this and, and, and take over and be my replacement. I'm like, whoa, this is weird. I'm working at UCLA at the time. My wife's a nurse. And um, then COVID happens. I'm like, dude, I'm not getting that vaccine. They, they ended up firing me for not getting the vaccine. And that catapulted me into full-time pro-life work. Uh, fast forward like a year later, I'm somehow at the steps of the Supreme Court speaking when Roe v. Wade is getting overturned. I pop a champagne bottle just going crazy. And I'm like, how in the world, Lord, did you get me here? I would have never, ever imagined. <clears throat> but I, I learned that one of the reasons why we're so afraid of this, pastors are so afraid of this, is because over 40% of the women who polled in abortions, at the time of their abortions, they were in church regularly. This is how much of a disconnect, how much of a uh, separation. We, we put our lives in little tiny categories. This is my church life, right? This is what I do on Sunday. And the rest of the week, we just, we live however we want to live. So I, I go to the, my pastors. They don't want to talk to me because this is a political issue. But then I go to the politicians and they don't want to touch this issue for their campaigns because this is a personal spiritual issue. Everybody passing the buck and meanwhile, 
3,000 children heaped every day into medical incinerators while the smoke of their destruction is rising up to the God of the universe. And our pulpits are silent. Martin Luther said this, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be confessing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all of the battlefield besides that point is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at all at the point necessary. I'm going to try to do three things this, this today. Talk to you about the pervasive reality of abortion in our society. Talk about the history of abortion and child sacrifice throughout all of the scripture and try to point to the solution to child sacrifice. Many don't know, but I mean, that, guys, the more that I study about this, the more that I learn about this, the organization I'm working with has just been all full steam ahead trying to end fetal organ trafficking in California, specifically uh, you, the UCSF is the late-term abortion center training center of the entire world. But UCSF is literally taking the organs of 11 to 24-week-old gestational children, and they are putting them on lab rats and mice, creating human mouse chimeras, because they found, hey, this is incredibly valuable for our research. If we can test these mice with a humanized immune systems, we don't have to test them on humans, or at least not the humans that we feel are worthy of value. So every, um, every day in America, I mean, unborn, like, I, the more I study this, all that's to say, abortion is literally the lifeblood of America. It is in every single fabric of our society, every institution is pervaded with child killing. It's intermingled with everything we do. We've exploited pregnant women and used the death of the children to fuel our vaccines, develop our pharmaceutical drugs, research and development into even the flavorings of our foods, our taxes, all our millionaire, billionaire type business tycoons are all funding this to the tunes of billions of dollars. Warren Buffett, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, um, Jeff Bezos. There are just abortion. Please, we cannot get enough of it. We can't make enough money off of it. And the history of them all, they love it. Why? Because it's steeped and centered in massively in eugenics. The bodies of our children, uh, I hate to tell you this, our remnants of their fetal remains are in our water supply. Aborted fetal material um, 
is, I mean, it, it's in our fertilizers because we incinerate these children that make it to the incinerators, the, that, the ones that don't even end up in the sewer because we're flushing a thousand of our children down the toilets every day with the abortion pill. The bodies of the children, incinerators, and, 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 and the ones in their sewers are just filling America. And that the product of that incineration then gets converted into nitrogen fuel to be made fertilizers and spread in the ground. If there isn't some biblical symbology there, as the ground is crying out of the blood of Abel, how much more the innocent blood of these children are crying up from the ground, screaming to the Lord, how long? As the souls of these bodies of these children around the throne are saying to the Lord, how long, how long, how long, O Lord? Will this happen? How long? Will the members of my community, the brothers and sisters, be slaughtered so you can live and go to school so you can live and, and have a happy house and a, you know, a nicer car and a future. And then our pastor is thankfully not the one here, but are bribed into silence about it so that their churches aren't taken away and their incomes and livelihoods stay where they are. I won't belabor the point, but there's a few graphics I wanted to show you to talk about the pervasive reality of fetal organ trafficking in America. If you could pull up that first slide. I actually created this slide. I call it the unholy trinity because your tax money to the tune this year of upwards of, I believe is between 80 or 70 and and 100 million, but the rough estimate right now is $87 million of your tax money alone is going to the NIH to buy fetal organs for their research projects. And how it works is they're taking your taxpayer money, they're then funneling that money to these research facilities that are working with fetal organ contracts, fetal organ pro projects, research projects, and then they now have your tax money, so they need to get the organs. So they are either going directly to their own abortion clinics, or they're using middlemen like fetal organ taxis, Uber drivers, to go pick up these organs with companies like AVR, STEM Express, these are the ones that David Delighton exposed back in 2015 with those undercover Planned Parenthood videos. He caught them red-handed. They did nothing about it except prosecute him and give him about 10 felonies. So they're going with your tax money given to these research facilities. These research facilities are going to abortion clinics and these abortion clinics are making money in three ways. They're making money on the front end by just not even these taxpayer money for these organs, but just taxpayer money to exist. Planned Parenthood gets money just to exist from us. Then they're getting money from the, or, from the 
the abortions that they're performing, they're charging these women for. And then after they're done with the abortion, they're taking the organs after they're all chopped up and then selling those organs with your tax money back to the research facility so that they can put them on lab rats and test them on their botched Frankenstein-like Nazi Mengele experiments. The next slide, if you could. This is the NIH website. If you look down here, you can literally just go to the NIH, type in human fetal tissue, as I did right here, fetal tissue. This year, here's a graph. Man, 20, 2018 was a huge year for baby killing, $115 million of your tax money going to those organs. But this year, it's yeah, rough estimated around 70 million this year of your tax money going towards the organs of children. They found ways, they've got very creative as to how they can um, worship the God of Moloch and Baal and how Baal has made them very profitable doing it due to uh, uh, companies like Regeneron. There's a CEO of Regeneron, is a, is a, their chief scientist teamed up with Bill Gates and uh, Yale University, and they perfected the art of destroying the immune system of a mouse so that it doesn't reject the organs of the, the, the organs that they're trying to transplant. They nuke its immune system so that when they put these organs on now, it won't reject them. Then they can test these Mice, and they behave exactly like a human would behave because they've been given the immune system of a child. The um, CEO of Regeneron, after he finally was successful in this, coined the words, he said the words, behold, the most valuable mouse ever created and the reason why is because it has made billions, not only off of the research, but the patents to that technology. And if you've heard of humanized mice with COVID and with all this stuff, all of these vaccines have all been acquired with the data of butchering thousands and thousands and thousands of children What's, what's, we would talk about child sacrifice and, and, and we, we go into the Old Testament and we talk about all of these Canaanite villages and deities giving worship to Baal and Moloch and Astaroth. And we're like, ah, oh, that's crazy. That's what they used to do. No, we're doing it today. Because what, what's the lie? What's the lore? The lore is this. Give us your babies and we'll give you a future. Sacrifice your children and you get to go to college. You get a better life. You get a nice house. You get to one day live your American dream and have kids as your own God, be your own God and 
have your own children and the time that you want to have them. You get to have all the sex you want with no consequences. You get the pharmaceutical youth. Give us your lifeblood of your children in exchange. I will give you the fountain of pharmaceutical youth. We're injecting hundreds and thousands of tiny little image bearers of God literally into our skin for the stem cells that they have in, as new embryos. This is happening. So I look at these graphs about, about you know, <laughs> how much money the government's getting, how give, taking from us and, and all these graphs about, uh, I, I'm, like, I'm like, wait, what happened to like, you shouldn't, you can't legislate morality, <laughs> right? We like, we try to keep the 10 commandments. Oh, you can't legislate morality. No, you can't legislate your, the morality of the God of the Bible. But when it comes to the God of their system, when it comes to the, the philosophical God of Moloch who wants the blood of your children, bow down, pay your tithes. We are going to force them from you at pretty much the end of the gun. And if you don't like it, too bad. Graphs like this show me one thing, religion externalized. Politics is religion externalized. Um, I want to go to quickly to De Deuteronomy twelve twenty nine. Um, this this is talking about the Canaanite people and the gods that they worshipped. Quick, just quick little introduction to this. This is right before. God, so God called Abraham out of Earl Chaldees. He get, he's like, go to this land. I'm going to show you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And they wander around the, the desert for so long. And they're like, God, are you going to give us this land? We're, we're in the desert. We can't eat. We can't drink. You have to give us like literally smack this rock and water comes out and us for to drink. And you have to give us manna from heaven to eat. We're dying here for 40 years. And then... They finally take possession of the land of Canaan. God gives it to them, because it's, but it's full of Canaanites. It's full of the people that God hates because they're practicing this kind of idolatry. He issues this stern warning to them as they're about to go take the land. He says, Deuteronomy 12, 29, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations, whom you go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in the land. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After that they all have been destroyed before you, and you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve the gods that I may do the same? Think, they're thinking about this. They're thinking, man, I've been wandering through the stinking desert for 40 years. These people have been dwelling in this land of, of flowing with milk and honey. What kind of gods are those? Are they serving? What the kind of gods are that let them dwell in this land and made it fruitful, made it multiply? What kind of gods are those gods? 
that made these people as numerous as the eye could see. That we're terrified they're giants. What kind of God makes those giant people? He warns them, don't do it. Don't go after those gods. You shall not, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, be careful to do it. Yet despite the warning, they go and take the land of Canaan, which at that time was, you know, they were dwelling in the promised land, Jerusalem. They take the land, and uh, that's exactly what they did. Through all the time of, of the kings and all the, the after, the, all the prophets are just now, from, from here on out to the end, they're just like, what the heck? To, to the time they leave Babylon in chains. Why are you guys going after these gods? Don't, don't set up the pole to Asheroth in your high places. Don't burn your babies in the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom now becomes, what Jesus gets on the scene, he describes that place as hell. Interesting. The very place that these Canaanites and the God, or the, really the, now the people of Israel are going to burn their babies in these fire pits that are just smoldering all the time. Jesus now relates that place to hell and says, the things that you're doing to these babies will be done to you. This is hell. You want to see hell? You want to know hell? This is it. What you want, I'm going to give you as a mirror of your lifestyle, I am going to give you the very thing that you practice. Child sacrifice literally becomes indicative of hell for Jesus. And Jeremiah, he's pleading. He's like, after the fact, he's like, oh my gosh, you guys are, you're, you're doing this. Why? Please don't keep going after the Astaroth. Don't keep going after Baal. Don't keep going after Moloch. The people have forsaken me and profaned this place, making offerings to other gods, whom ne neither their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, and they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it even come into my mind. The Lord is like, this is so wicked. I, could, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't imagine a thing so diabolical. Something like this could not even enter my mind. The omniscient God could say something like this. Not only Moloch, he talks about, I'm sorry, not only Baal, he talks about Moloch. Um, by the way, these were akin deities. They, they, in different areas, many people are kind of wondering if these two deities, Moloch and, and Baal, were, were manifestations of the same deity or if, if they were different ones. But 
It says, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, they did not, uh, they did to provoke me to anger, the kings of uh, and their officials, the priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they've turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently and they have not listened to receive instruction, they set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to offer their sons and their daughters to Moloch. Therefore, I did not command them, nor did it even enter in my mind that they should do this abomination. So these Canaanite gods, three gods really that the scripture speaks of is Baal, Ashtoreth, the, like, maybe known as the queen of heaven. They would build this, these tall um, poles in the high places to Ashtoreth and they would go uh, worship there. Baal was this warrior god. It actually, it was, it's interesting, Baal or, or Moloch, he's the descendant of Ashtaroth, but also his lover. Uh, and between his power as a warlike provider and her powerful fertility, yeah, powerful fertility power, uh, it was incredibly enticing to the, Isra the people of Israel. So uh, the people after they, it's, it's interesting to history, on, on a little bit of history on, on the Canaanite peoples, after they were driven out of the land of Israel, they wandered around and ended up settling in kind of North Africa area in many regions throughout North Africa. Uh, but most notably was they settled in Carthage. And Carthage was uh, known as modern-day Tunisia, North Africa, just south of, of Italy in Sardinia. And this city at one point was so powerful in Carthage that it Roman the, uh, that rivaled the Roman Republic. Uh, the Carthaginians spoke the, the language of the Canaanite people, but also the Carth uh, people of Carthage worshipped the Canaanite gods. For a long time, uh, people really skeptical of the Jewish accounts in the Bible of all this child sacrifice. That couldn't have happened. These people, that was just, that was just Hebrew-Israelite talk. Um, but we, well, all that was until we, we discovered the writings of many of the Greek historians in the fourth century, uh, the Greek historian Clitarchus said of the Carthaginians, there stand in the midst a bronze statue of Kronos. Kronos was their name for Baal Haman, the Canaanite god. Its hands over a bronze brazier, the flames of which would engulf the child. And when the flames fall upon the body and the limbs contract and the open mouth seems to almost be laughing, the deity almost be laughing until the contracted body then falls off the arms, quietly falls into the brazier. This, he says, referring to the mouth of the God, is that grin as known as sardonic laughter 
the man maniacal cackling. Ironically, you see that very much in front of abortion clinics and you see that in front of uh, people who are pro-choice crazies in front of the Supreme Court, just maniacally cackling, just like their God because you, you become what you worship. Uh, this is the grin known as the sardonic laughter since they die laughing. Another Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus, sorry my pronounces, writing less than 100 years after the fall of Carthage, affirms his countryman's account, and he says, uh, there was in their city a bronze image of Kronos extending its hands, palms up, and sloping towards the ground so that each of the children when placed thereon rolled down and fell into a gaping pit filled with fire. Finally, the, the most notable historian Plutarch said this about Carthage. With full knowledge and understanding, they themselves offered up their children. And those who had no children, get this, would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without a tear or moan. But, she, but should she utter a single moan or let a single tear fall, she had to forfeit the money and her child was sacrificed nonetheless. And the whole area before the statue was filled with loud noises of flutes, and drums that took the cries of wailing so that they should not reach the ears of the people. Many people still doubted the Greek historians, and that was until 1921. The French archaeologists excavated some of the ruins of ancient Carthage, and one site appeared at first to be an ancient graveyard, the sites contain hundreds of grave markers, each with urns containing the cremated remains of human infants. Some as many as seven urns were found on top of one another under a single marker. The soil was rich with olive wood charcoal, indicating fires had been kept burning there for long periods of time. The archaeologists dubbed this place Tophet, which was the Hebrew word for a place of child sacrifice near Jerusalem. Indicated, indicated by the prophet Jeremiah. Yet many doubted that the biblical account of the Canaanite child sacrifice and believed them something to be graves. That was until they read the inscriptions on the urns. These inscriptions were vows to the Canaanite god, Baal Haman and Tenet. Who was Tenet? Tenet was the consort of Baal Haman, known in the scriptures as none other than Astaroth. Many other inscriptions record depictions from child's parents to Baal and Ashtaroth that concluded with benedictions to the deities as having heard my voice and blessed me. Hashtag blessed. Thank God for abortion. Dr. Uh, Joseph Quinn, the University of Oxford, conducts an extensive research on the burial urns 
regarding skepticism, skepticism over the burial site, she, she says this, people have tried to argue that the archeological sites are cemeteries for children who were still bored or died young. Sound kind of familiar. Oh, these, these aborted babies. Oh, those aren't aborted kids that you have pictures of. Oh, those are still births. But quite apart from the fact that a weak, sick, or dead child would be a pretty poor offering to a God, and that animal remains were found in the same sites, treated in exactly the same way, it's hard to imagine how the death of a child could count as an answer to a prayer. And that uh, largest grave site there in Carthage, 20,000 infants were discovered. According to uh, them, the archaeologists, 67% of them were between one and two months old. 20,000. Boggles the senses, right? That's a week in America. So, I mean, maybe some of you are a little skeptical about this link between child sacrifice and uh, abortion. How can the world, can you link a pagan fertility cult to the sin of abortion? Well, that's easy, guys. I mean, what was the draw? Give us your babies, your crops will grow. Give us your babies, and uh, you'll have a future posterity, wealth. You'll eat of the fat of the land. Give your children to the demons and you'll have a future. Bow down to me and I'll give you the kings in the world. That same lie, the same lore, the same demons they worship. The only difference is a different time and a different marketing. But you might say, come on, AJ. These are one and two year old infant or one and two month old infants. Can we really relate that to a newly developed embryo in the womb. Absolutely. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. One, because the scripture knows no difference between a child in the womb and a child outside of the womb. If God creates a human being, when does that human being start existing? Science has confirmed that that is at the moment of conception. The only difference between what's in the womb and you and I is nothing but time and degree. Luke chapter one, the same Greek word, this is fascinating, the word brephos. In Luke chapter one is used of John the Baptist in the womb leaping for joy. The very next chapter, guess what word is used for Jesus lying in the manger? The same Greek word, brephos. I, I just marvel when people tell me that, that abortion is in the Bible. It is literally the heartbeat of the entire scriptures. Child sacrifice is the major dominant theme. Don't do this. This is what pagans do. Don't do it. This is abominable to me. Don't do it, please. The cry of the prophets, the cry of the apostles all, all the time, the early church literally ended. Christians ended this practice. 
They would go into, it would, the Romans would expose their children that they found a defect in them. They would take them out in the, the, the city gates around, and uh, the mountains around Jeru, or Jerusalem, the, occupied Rome, by Rome at the time, or they, they would take in Rome, in, in all the, the uh, Europe at the time, the Christians would go and listen for the cries of infants exposed because of some defect or because they were a girl instead of a boy. And they rescued these children and the church grew because of the, the courageous acts of Christians proclaiming the God who loves life as opposed to the, the bloodthirsty tyrants of the gods of the pagan nations. See, the church even gets wrapped up in this type of thinking that my life starts as a heart, if you have a heartbeat or if you don't have brain waves, ah, it's not conscious, I can kind of understand that. It's, guys, it's logical buffoonery. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a logical inconsistency to, to akin human value with human function. Right, your brain doesn't stop developing till you're 30. My infant, three-year-old infant, can't, can't survive outside of the womb. We equate human value with human function. My, my, I get this, this so brilliantly said by my friend Seth Gruber is that these categories are utterly arbitrary. Instead of grounding something personhood and human rights and something that we all share, humanity, a human nature, we ground it in certain things that we want, categories that we want to ascribe valuable, value and personhood to. So it's, it's simple as this. It's like, why are you taking these arbitrary accidental properties like consciousness, like a heartbeat, like brain waves, like fingers or toes. Why not, if you're going to take these arbitrary categories or these functional capabilities, why not other ones? They can't talk yet outside of the womb. They can't walk yet outside of the womb. Not, why doesn't that confer personhood? Why is it a heartbeat? Why is it brain waves? Why is it consciousness? Why is it certain levels of consciousness? Peter Singer says you can, you can kill a baby up to two or three years old because they haven't fully developed consciousness. We erect these arbitrary views of personhood that are totally arbitrary, totally just, we just made these up, really. It's my own opinion and not something we all share, which is humanity and human nature. Human value is not determined by human function. Um... But that's why, I mean, the science of embryology, the science of abortion, guys, is so unbelievably clear. I mean, we've known this forever. You open up any textbook, biology textbook, there's not a single embryology textbook alive, even in this crazed world that we're living in that dehumanizes unborn children, even children after born. And I hate to tell you guys, uh, uh, Gavin Newsom last week just signed a bill into existence, AB 2223, that now protects children even after born 
mothers that wanted to or trying to kill them but failed. If you throw that baby in a garbage can, well, we can't investigate that murder. Not anymore in California. We're preparing ourselves to be abortion destinations, even for children that are born alive at full term. <clears throat> the science is unbelievably clear, but it's never been about science. Never been about science. Abortion is about one thing, it's about the gospel of self. Politics cannot drive out the gospel of self. Science cannot drive out the gospel of self. There's only one gospel that can drive out the gospel of self that will lead you to baby murder, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to end, um, I'm gonna wrap it up here, but uh, March, March 25th was, uh, ironically, it was the day of the unborn. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it literally marks exactly nine months before the birth of Christ, March 25th. My wife and I got a phone call. We had some friends saying, AJ, we need you here. Immediately, we ended up going there. We found a, a, a box of, of, of children outside of an abortion clinic. And inside that box was, it was, this box was on its way to a medical waste facility. Inside the box was 115 aborted children, and five of them were full-term, third trimester children with overwhelming evidence of partial birth abortion, federal crimes, and infanticide that these children had been born alive. And uh, it became a national news story. We were embroiled in this whole controversy. There's a lot there that I don't really have time to get into. But I think what's incredibly important is that we See the victims of abortion. There's a story of Emmett Till. Quickly, he was a boy who was killed uh, through racism in the South. And Emmett Till was so brutally mangled and, and, and it was unrecognizable due to racism. And his mother decided that he, she was going to have an open casket so that the world could look on the mangled image of her son and see what the hatred of racism did. And um, it ended up being that image that sparked Rosa Parks in her boldness. She said, I, I saw the image of that boy and I, I, I couldn't give up my seat. I think in our sensitivity, sometimes we don't want to think about the victims of abortion. But I think God did an incredible gift in a weird way of letting us find these babies and name every single one of them and show them to the world is literally two months before Roe v. Wade. God opened the door, peeled back the curtain into the abortion clinic and let us see the gruesome 
wicked, abominable practice of abortion in its gory, ugly face. So these are the images of the five aborted babies we'll show. You don't have to look at them. I would strongly suggest that you do. This is Christopher X, full-term child. That is a little on hell. So brutally mangled and dismembered, we didn't know the sex. This is Phoenix, a baby born in call. How in the world do you perform an abortion on a baby that's dead without coming alive and still be fully intact in the amniotic sac? A question we may never know because the DC Medical Examiner and uh, Mayor Bowser will refuse to perform an autopsy on these children covering for big abortion. This is little Harriet. The back of her skull had been snipped. Classic partial birth abortion fashion and her brain suctioned out. <clears throat> Finally, this is uh, Holly. Most likely a victim of a DNX procedure where she's dismembered alive in the womb. <clears throat> my final close with this my final uh, message I just want to give you is a message for the sexually wayward a message for the backslidden the prostitute the impoverished the pregnant whether you are the medical, metaphorical David on the rooftop of the palace or Jezebel in the temple of demons. I offer you two sacrifices. <clears throat> there are two sacrifices for you, two gods. Moloch has his arms wide open, stretched out to you, brazen hot, red hot, waiting to you get, for you to get, get you out, offer a political savior to take the life of your child and set you free from the bondage of your responsibilities. Two saviors, two deaths. Both can bring you out of your present situation, but I tell you this, only one will bring you life. Both have their arms stretched out wide for you to come Ultimately, the solution to child sacrifice is a child sacrifice. So sister, brother, father, mother, where will you run? Will you run, run with your child to the brazen, red, hot, flexed out arms of Moloch? Or will you run to the nail-pierced, stretched out, open arms of Christ who gave your, his life for your pardon? Satan will kill your child, enslave you, and lead you to death and destruction. But the sacrifice of Christ, stretched out, open, wide, the child, the f God who became the fetus, stretches his arms out open wide for you to give you life that you may have it abundantly. Let's pray.